Welcome to Smart in the City, the Babel podcast where we bring together top actors in the smart city arena, sparking dialogues and interactions around the stakeholders and themes most prevalent for today's citizens and tomorrow's generations. I am your host, Hanlon Shimizu, and I hope that you will enjoy this episode and gain knowledge and connections to drive the change for a better urban life. Smart in the City is brought to you by Babel Smart Cities. We enable processes from research and strategy development to co-creation and implementation. To learn more about us, please visit the Babel platform at babel-smartcities.eu. So today, um, yeah, get ready for a, a trip across the pond to the UK, um, where we are learning all about the landscape of the UK on a local, national level. Um, and I won't leave you really guessing any longer who the guest is, but it's one of the best people that we know to talk about the UK. Um, he's the director of Core Cities UK. So please give a very warm welcome to Stephen Jones. Welcome onto the show, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward it's, to chatting. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. So, um, so just to just to get warmed up, we always start off with a little bit of a teaser question. Um, and I was just, you know, I, I was just thinking, there's so many stereotypical things, British things, and I'm just wondering, what's the most stereotypical British thing you've ever done? Oh. Uh... <laughs> Oh wow! Have you queued, Probably, are, are you a queue lover? I am a queue lover, though I didn't. I didn't join the queue to see the Queen, which is probably the most stereotypical British thing <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of people have done within the last twelve months. Uh, I, you know, probably eating fish and chips in a car in the rain at the seaside. That's that's quite a British thing. That's very, uh, that sounds very British, yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to get a little bit more into your background. Besides eating fish and chips in the rain, um, can you can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from? I know you're working on also on the national level before working for Core Cities. Can you tell us a bit about um, your whole journey and what led you to Core Cities? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, so I grew up in a town called Witness, which is about 15 miles outside of Liverpool uh, in the northwest. Uh, and then sort of from there, I went to university. After university, I started working in the UK civil service uh, as an economist, uh, in, principally in terms of my professional background. Uh, and found I then did that for nearly 20 years, uh, moving between different central government departments, spending a bit of time uh, in the sort of central departments, the cabinet office, the treasury, as well as uh, quite a lot of time in what is effectively the department. Uh, its name has changed multiple times in those in that years, but the department was responsible for local government, for regeneration, urban policy, etc. And, and uh, most recently, I was the director of what was called the Cities and Local Growth Unit. So I had responsible for uh, responsibility for city policy, uh, urban policy, regeneration, uh, what, was, what the UK political class are calling levelling up uh, at the moment was my, uh, was my responsibility. I sort of did that until, uh, what, so for October last year, so just over six months ago, when I, when I sort of moved from central government to local government to join Core Cities UK. And I sort of described it a little bit as sort of putting my mouth where my money has been. Uh, and one of the natures of the UK uh, sort of constitutional position is the centralisation of uh, policy and power over many aspects that, when you look in other countries, are devolved to local government. And 
I'm a sort of great believer in devolution, decentralization, local control. And, and so I thought having kind of sat on one side of that table, going, having the chance to work with the 11 big city councils outside of London and, and really advocate for them and push collectively for what we can do more uh, was a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting journey. And so um, maybe to tell our listeners also, like, what is Core Cities? You you alluded yeah. to the fact that you work yeah. with the big city, uh, big cities in the UK. Um, what do you do and why is it important? Yeah, so so Core Cities is, is sort of a local government organisation. Uh, and we bring together the uh, 11 uh, big city councils uh, outside of London and, uh, uh, I won't list them now, though. Happy to if if if, if your listeners would be interested. Uh, Will you forget we... one of them, though? Uh, no, no, I, no, I'm, pre- I'm pretty good. I'm okay. pretty good at doing it. You know, it's, it's quite it's quite dangerous if you yeah. if you if you have eleven things to list and you you, you forget you forget who the goalkeeper is. Offend one uh, of them. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, so, uh, but the we, we I think there are sort of two things we try and do. One of which is learning from each other so we we get together as the the political leaders the chief execs the sort of directors of different services and and sort of is there something interesting that newcastle is doing that bristol can learn from is there something that uh cardiff is doing in a welsh context that is useful for the english cities to learn from those kind of uh sort of peer-to-peer uh support and and development and then secondly it's trying to collectively speak for the voice of cities on the national stage, whether that's with central government, whether that's with sort of uh, sector groups, organisations, businesses, uh, think tanks, uh, academia, to really kind of try and uh, make the case for why our cities are so important, what uh, what they need to succeed, what we're doing, uh, where where we need support from others, uh, and and that is something that is hugely important. I think the other thing that increasingly is important is that role that we're trying to play on the international stage, uh, and I think particularly post Brexit, a recognition of a need to use all different sort of links and relationships globally, not just sort of nation state to nation state and. Uh, through things like our sort of relationship with Euro cities uh, and with other city networks in other cities in Europe, or more recently uh, and quite sort of relevant in the moment, our work with what's called the Urban Seven, which is the kind of group of city networks for the seven nations represented by the G7, is a good chance to have those dialogues and recognise that, you know, what are we doing to transition to net zero is is something that that cities across the world are talking about. How do you integrate migrants uh, who are moving? Again, is is an issue facing all cities, and and it's it's those kind of dimensions that uh, we we see real value in. Yeah, really interesting work. And I think it parallels a lot with with what we try to do also with the podcast, of course, is like getting these lessons learned out. Um, so so that's really, really nice uh, connections there. So what do you think you mentioned this, you know, connections between UK cities and, and European cities and these networks? What do you think are 
the differences between the cities in the UK and what do you think are the most, I guess, the most unique challenges that the UK cities face in comparison to uh, European cities? So, so I think there are probably two things I would highlight. Uh, firstly, the kind of, and I sort of alluded to this a bit earlier, the, the sort of roles, responsibilities, powers, levers that UK local government within the UK has are a lot more limited than they exist in many other countries. There is a sort of, you know, very well used statement in most sort of publications and around on this subject in the UK that we are one of the most centralized countries in in the OECD. And and that's very true. And so when you think about uh if you're the mayor or leader of a city in the UK compared to an equivalent sized city in France or Germany or Italy or Spain or any of the other European countries, what 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 responsibilities that you have, what revenue raising powers you have, what uh, services you're responsible for is, is much more limited, and and so that that creates a different challenge. It makes it harder. It's why we are advocating for more devolution to the local level, but also it puts a real emphasis on the importance of that relationship between local leaders and the national government uh, and. And the sort of power balance in that conversation isn't isn't as kind of even as we think it should be and isn't what we see in other European nations. I think the other thing that is sort of different, and it's a sort of peculiar thing about the UK, is economically our, our cities are underpowered. Uh, I think uh, the it is own, aside from London, of our major big cities, it's only Bristol uh, and you know, marginally Cardiff, Edinburgh, that actually are sort of above the UK average in terms of their economic productivity. Uh, that's quite different to most other countries. You know, the cities are the kind of, in in theory at least, the drivers of economic growth. It's where the innovation happens. It's where the large businesses are located. It's where the the sort of, the kind of activity should be at its strongest. And our sort of cities in the UK are kind of, underperforming and underpowered and it's something that we we want to understand why is that why that's the case what we can do about it and how do we kind of accelerate that change and and in recent years we have seen some progress you know the growth in cities like manchester and leeds and birmingham is is kind of really encouraging but but it's kind of catching up uh a sort of history and a legacy of deindustrialization that we need to keep going and go further and really really sort of back our cities going forward yeah. And how does that speak? Because, of course, this is a smart city podcast or, as you like to say in the UK, smart places. Um, but how does that speak to the, the smart readiness of the cities in the UK? Um, can you discuss a bit here, like the key factors and strategies that go into this and how you see that in the landscape of the UK? So I think I think we are we're probably behind the curve, I would say, in terms of our smart readiness. Certainly, if if you compare us to some of the, you know, kind of newer cities in in asia latin america uh sort of what sort of across the whole of the globe uh partly you know our our infrastructure in our cities is is old you know our city our cities are by their nature they've been there for a long time they they grew heavily during the industrial revolution and and actually many of the sort of key networks that that underpin the cities haven't changed dramatically in in hundred plus years and so ensuring that they are kind of they are smart 
in a way that represents different mobility and transport uses, the efficiency of our building stock in terms of its, uh, whether it's its energy efficiency or its uh, kind of technology readiness is is sort of behind the curve, thinking about sort of how we sort of how we use our spaces, how we sort of design. A lot of it is regenerative, regenerative retrofitting, sort of rather than you know blanker sheets of paper. We're not, we're not sitting there creating a kind of mile long city in the desert, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so it's even more than a mile long theory. And and but so I think that creates a different type of challenge in terms of ensuring that we are we are ready i think i think what what i would say though is the there is still innovation and and still a real willingness and an opportunity to try and bring forward new ideas new approaches uh and and if we can get it right in in sort of uk cities there is an applicability elsewhere that we 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 should we should look to what are the key? Advocate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what are what are those key key steps? So you see a willingness and there's progress. What is the push? Is it um, you know investment? Is it this uh, focus more on going from national government more to the cities and giving more power back to the cities? What do you think are the those key next steps to to really get that accelerated? So, so I think it's, it's definitely the things you've you've said. I think I would say. Uh, firstly, you know, you need to, you need to create the right environment where that innovation happens, where, you know, whether it's in research institutes, universities, in businesses, uh, create the opportunity for kind of collaborative identifying what the challenges are and coming forward with solutions and opportunities to, to kind of, so you need that sort of kind of innovative environment and that encouragement of uh, coming forward with the ideas. I think I think you then definitely need an, a kind of the investment, uh, both public and private, and recognising that those need to be balanced and the risk needs to be properly uh, shared at different, at different stages of that journey of implementing those innovations. At times, the public money will need to be there up front to, to kind of create a market that doesn't exist. But you will, you will want to kind of, when you want to scale that up, you will want the private sector to come, come forward rather than keep that on, on the public balance sheet. I think the, the other sort of driver is, is kind of a need to sort of engage with communities and to kind of get the... Uh, which I think is best done by local leaders and and in and out on the ground rather than top down. I think often when when we're talking about introducing new innovations, new technology, new approaches, you're asking people to change how they live their lives or what they do. You know, take a different mode of transport, heat their homes differently, kind of use a use a new technology that they're unaware of and. A, maybe a bit nervous about so how you build that buy-in you need to create the kind of a, a kind of community around around that to sort of to see the opportunity to not fear the the unknown and i think that that sort of is something that is critical really because particularly you know the danger of a good idea gets gets kind of criticized and then jumped on and suddenly everyone fit 
fears it and and it it sort of you know doesn't get off the ground as a as a concept because because people believe it's going to do something and it's not going to do i think it's a real yeah important I'm, thing i'm a big believer in mitigating fear of course with uh, very, very well thought out and planned communications, of course, as well. So, um, but that's my uh, bias in the, in the communications field. So, um, we're talking a lot about, you know, smart readiness and all of this. Of course, this leads into the big net zero discussion also, right? So, um, it's 27 years until 2050. Clock is ticking. Um, what are cities doing in the UK to prepare for this? And what do they, is it the same steps that you just outlined to, for the smart readiness? Or are there, you know, also extensions upon that to really get to that net zero targets? So, so I think it's similar, but I think, mm-hmm. I think the scale of the challenge and the scale of the, the need is, is sort of, you know, dramatic. And therefore there's more, there is more urgency around around this debate, uh, and you know, there's an element on the kind of smart readiness. Is it kind of nice to have uh, on some aspects? You know, is it about making people's quality of life just slightly improved? I think on the net zero side, it's it's not a nice to have; it's a must have. And I think that that sort of changes the the nature of uh, the sort of the debate around it. But in terms of what what are we doing? So one of the things we as core cities are uh, pushing quite hard along with uh, London councils, who is a similar group representing the the London boroughs, is uh, we're we're working with what's called the Connected Places Catapults on an initiative that's called the Three CI, the uh, Cities uh, Commission for Climate Investment. And I think what what in that we are trying to do is recognizing that to make the the, the transition to net zero, you need a whole place solution. It's not just about tr- changing kind of uh, vehicles to electric vehicles. It's not just about uh, installing new kind of uh, clean boilers in homes. It's not just about uh, moving to more renewable el- electricity. It's it's all of those things and more. And And to do that kind of planning and to do that implementation it is easier to do it by picking a place and looking at what all those interventions interventions are collectively rather than trying to have an approach that is focused on a particular technology rollout and trying to target individual customers or individual households. You end up having those situations that are deeply infuriating where you walk down a street with a load of south-facing roofs and sort of two of them have installed solar on their roofs and five of them haven't and you're like you know what's surely there would have been a better argument to basically install something at, in one go across that whole run of terrace houses it's 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 that kind of kind of community planning and community design of solutions where uh i think we think there's real potential and so we're quite a lot of the work we're doing as cities with both individually in our 11 cities but also learning from each other is working about what does what does the what does this engineering solution need to look like? What are the technologies that we need to in, install? What are the sort of switches and transitions we need on mobility, on heating, on uh, energy generation? But also, then how are we going to finance that? Uh, and to recognise that to make that transition, we can't do it on public investment alone. We will need to leverage in significant private investment and the encouragement encouraging thing is the private investment community the city 
wants to get into this space. They see they see the the direction of travel. They recognize uh they recognize it from a financials point of view as well as from a kind of uh you know doing good moral position. And so uh it's about how do you create the right sort of again that this goes back to my point what's the right balance of public and private funding what's the right risk sharing what's the right delivery vehicles that you can you can design to make sure that you do create that uh that sort of collective endeavor to to install the right technological solution at scale this is actually i just got off a meeting right before this with our partners and we're actually working on this topic together in a project on public and private so we've been experts in in accessing public mechanisms uh, for for many years now, and we're actually you know really looking at this in the future with with a project moving forward on on balancing this this funding from the public and private sector. So really really uh, interesting topics there. Um, are you uh, are you able to give some examples like very practical examples like projects that are happening in some of your core cities right now of either like smart readiness or climate um, adaptive type projects? Yeah. Let, let, let. Uh, definitely. Let me let me do two. I'll do one on one on each. So, uh, on the uh, smart on the climate side, the there is a recent uh, in Bristol. Uh, there is a project that's recently been launched uh, called the City Leap, uh, which is is looking to transform with you know billions of pounds and investment in that net zero transition and and the model is uh, exactly the in the way we've described that balance between what what does the public sector what does the uh public state bring to the table and where do you need the private investment and and it's sort of utilizing uh firstly it's utilizing the fact that within bristol there is a lot of uh assets owned by the local council so they own a lot of housing stock uh and a lot of building stock that that needs to make needs to be transitioned retrofitted made more energy efficient uh the it's not possible to make that transition on the uh on the kind of public balance sheet on with bristol's own finances but they've they've agreed a uh sort of a kind of strategic partnership and a joint venture with with an energy investor to to kind of install the right measures both sort of at a district level so a big kind of district heating network and at the individual household and and it took you know three four years to kind of come up with the right governance mechanism around this and the right finance mechanism around this to make sure that those balances were were shared but but it's kind of it's going now and we're, we're sort of seeing the, the fruits of that that endeavor and that investment up front to, to design the right scheme that is now starting to roll out significant investment in infrastructure on the smart cities side it's more there's more kind of uh in kind of piloting and investigating different opportunities the one that i'm most uh i think is most interesting is quite recently in newcastle uh there's uh, work was done between the city council, the schools, and the university, and there is a uh, centre up in Newcastle, the National Centre for Data, that has a huge ability recognising the sort of 
the sort of power of big data in solving public problems. Uh, and what they they sort of did as a as a trial is they attached uh, air pollution sensors to the school bags of all of their primary school children for a period of you know, I think it was a month, but it, it, I'm not sure exactly. But and they just monitored the air pollution on a sort of GPS route of every child going to and from school, uh, and then mapped that against the kind of the road layout and network of Newcastle City, uh, and they could they could identify from that data they got sort of hotspot areas of high air pollution at eight am in the morning. That and 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 so that allowed them then to come up with solutions. Some of it was talking to the parents saying, if you go this route, not that route, then then your child is exposed to X percent less air pollutants in the morning. Equally, I think they looked at can they change traffic lighting. Uh, sequences can they think about uh, traffic calming measures can they think about other methods just to sort of not to reduce necessarily the transport but to reroute the transport away from some of those uh, routes that people were using and so it's about thinking about fairly simple it's probably not very simple at all it's very complicated <laughs> technology but 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 kind of using a mixture of data sense sensor technology uh kind of small uh, kind of internet of things type act just to be able to kind of bring that together to think, well, what are actually things we can do with this to improve people's lives uh, rather than, you know, just doing it purely for making your, your latest app more efficient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really, really interesting use cases. Thanks for sharing that. I have one more question to ask you um, and then I will give you the open floor. So, um, what do you think after Brexit now? Um, are UK cities doomed um, a bit in, in strengthening these international relationships? Uh, how do you how do you see the the future moving forward? I, yeah, I'm I, I'm an inherent optimist. So, <laughs> OK, good. Uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't think it is not all doom and gloom. <laughs> I wouldn't think it is doomed. I think, you know, I think there is a challenge uh, and the the kind of the disruption uh to trade and to sort of global flows that brexit has caused is challenging for our cities that want to be open and uh compete on on the international stage and certainly if you know if you look at the if you look at the breakdown of the eu exit referendum the kind of the sort of leave vote to the remain vote looks very different in our UK cities than it did at, you know, in our rural areas or the UK as a whole. And so there is definitely a, you know, there's a different attitudinal approach in, uh, within our cities than there is in the UK as a whole. I think the, I think notwithstanding all of that, I think there is, you know, there are still huge, uh, opportunities and advantages of uk cities you know we have located within our cities some of the best universities in the world uh and some of the kind of greatest research uh strengths uh we have you know real cultural assets and kind of you know brand recognition for want of a better 
for want of a better word, people, you know, I can say I come from near Liverpool and people know where that is. Uh, Just because of way, football, but... No. Well, fo- football <laughs> football and the Beatles, but, but you yeah, know, football yeah. and the Beatles are important. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so that kind of, uh, you know, that history, you know, it brings a legacy in terms of our cities are probably a bit outdated, but it, it also brings a richness uh, and recognition uh, and that sort of is important in diplomatic and you know if if you look at how many of uk cities are are sort of twinned with cities around the world there is real depth of uh interconnectedness and and that comes also just in you know family relationships migration you know uh people living in cities and uh, who are have connections around the world i think i think the other th- dimension then is just kind of in general i you know i think cities will will be the driving force of global economics uh in the next century you know the the world is urbanizing uh and and so our cities are well placed within that context to to focus on things that that we're really good at you know we we have great creative industries we have great research we have huge sort of depth of uh quality of public service of professional services you know we the uk has largely insured the world for a long time uh and you know offered accountancy support and devised new legal frameworks and you know we have the english language there's lots of things that will still uh be real strengths and assets and it's about just finding finding our place as that evolves uh and and really it's why I think we as core cities put huge importance on maintaining that kind of city to city dialogue to kind of, in a way, avoid the kind of, avoid the misconception and avoid the risk of it just being, you know, at the national level in the UK for the last three, four or five years, it's been fairly tumultuous uh, and not particularly, uh, you know, we've not had a lot to shout about, but actually at a city level, it's been remarkably stable uh, and we've got on and done stuff. And I think we need to keep on doing that uh, and, and sort of making sure that others n- others know that we are open for business and keen to kind of be, uh, remain tolerant and compassionate and engaged with, with cities and citizens around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for that. Also, the, the emphasis on the strengths, right? Because we talked about how UK cities are behind in some areas, but I think capitalizing on those strengths is very important moving forward. So um, now I want to give you the open floor. You don't have to take it, as I always say. Um, but if you feel like we haven't touched on anything that we talked, like, is there anything that you really want the listeners to know? Uh, so... I think I think one of the things uh I think the last com- last conversation we had is really important. I think uh I'm I'm a huge advocate for our cities. Uh it's why I've, I picked this job, it's why uh I sort of will stand there and, and argue argue positively for it. I think the thing the thing I found quite interesting in the last couple of years in the sort of cities debate is is the kind of post covid our cities what are what's the long term future of cities you know and 
and I kind of, uh, you know, will we move to an increasing virtual world and you, you don't need city centres that people congregate in and those kind of... And I, I sort of found myself in a slightly strange position where, the, you know, the debate around the 15-minute city uh, and kind of the importance of having, you know, the, the very local... Uh, and I sort of find myself weirdly on the same side of the argument as a load of conspiracy theorists uh, <laughs> who think that, who sort of think the 15 minute city is, you know, some form of World Trade Organization kind of uh, threat to their their kind of ability to move around. And it's all some Hunger Games kind of thing. Uh, I, 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 I'm on the same side of that argument, but with a different argument. But, <laughs> but I think the... Uh, I think there is a kind of danger of us overemphasizing that importance of the very local. Uh, and I think we, you know, we have 15 minute cities, they're called towns. Uh, I think the <laughs> thing, the, the thing that actually, uh, the, the thing that we have with cities that are real strengths is their scale and their mixing. And the thing, my nervousness around some of that kind of urban planning, urban design, type debate that sort of wants to bring things to the very local is you will create you'll create sort of very nice neighborhoods that have everything that you want to live and they become very expensive and then you create places that you know don't have everything and they they become undesirable places to live and i think what you miss is the fact that where cities are most effective is bringing a lot of people together and mixing them up and getting new ideas and learning from each other and sparking uh new relationships and building greater tolerance because you meet people you wouldn't ordinarily meet and all of those things that are brilliant about sitting at you know midnight on a tube train home and just meeting people you wouldn't ordinarily meet uh it's just one of the great entertainments of life uh and <laughs> very and i think there is something in uh in the sort of urban policy space that needs to not not over emphasize the sort of technological shift that of remote working and of hybrid working and of sort of what we had to do uh, because of covid you know what was interesting is when once the restrictions were lifted people got out about people still want to spend time they might not want to go to a high street shop anymore because they can buy stuff online but they still want to spend time with other people and so i think there is something uh that we as policymakers in in this space need to need to do is to recognize that you know the technological changes and the opportunities of more doing more things virtually and is a complement not a substitute for uh what makes cities great and i think that's something that you know we should keep banging the drum about so i weirdly find myself sometimes kind of arguing against something that is uh, the, the conspiracy theorists are nervous about, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> not for the same reasons, so um, wonderful. So I, I wonder if if your answer is the same for this segment. Um, yeah, so now we will move into our segment. So we do lots of these fun segments as part of the podcast. And the segment that we have chosen for you today is Hot Take of the Day. Hot Take of the Day. We want to hear an opinion of yours that may be slightly controversial or debated. So what do you have for us today, Stephen? Uh, <laughs> oh, so I, I, it's, 
it's it's ultimately quite geeky because you know, <laughs> how, uh, that's that, that, um, I'm assuming that people listen to this podcast are not afraid of of that. But uh, <laughs> I've sort of gone full circle a bit from starting out as an economist in central government, sitting there doing kind of economic appraisal, cost benefit analysis of projects, and you know being a real advocate of of that uh, methodology to to decide where to spend money, where to invest and sort of I've had sort of 20 years on the back of that I've grown increasingly kind of sort of despairing and cynical about what value that really adds uh and I think the the sort of it's not that the tools are wrong like ultimately there is real benefit in being able to evaluate objectively the pros and cons of an investment and to work out what the benefits you're going to get from doing it how much is it going to cost i think the sort of the danger is is sort of threefold really firstly we're still not very good at it and so there's still a lot of things that we we either can't properly capture the benefits and pro- can't properly uh sort of understand what what is going to happen Equally, we massively uh, overestimate how cheaply we'll do things. Uh, and, you know, the high-speed rail in the UK is a great example of a failed cost-benefit analysis because it's, you know, the, as, as you roll it out, even building in optimism bias, it's still more expensive than we thought it was going to be. Uh, secondly, I think the it kind of, it's inherently retrospective. So it kind of it it forces you to say the only the only way of knowing whether this thing is a good thing is by using evidence of what we've done before, and so it's sort of built against actually taking any calculated risk. Uh, and so, particularly when you apply it to transport, the you know the value you get from saving a hundred thousand people five seconds a day. Uh, from making a journey by slightly improving the, you know, the junction speed of uh, on a on a roundabout, you know, you can calculate what that works out as a hundred thousand people times five seconds times their value of time. You come up with quite a big number. Actually, are those hundred thousand people going to notice that five seconds? Of course, they're not. Uh, whereas actually, building a new piece of transport infrastructure that connects two places, that two that people aren't currently traveling between uh, is valued really poorly because people aren't making that journey. So when you put it into the model, it says, well, it doesn't benefit that many people. But by by opening up that, you create new flows that don't currently exist. So I think there is sort of, there's a problem in the model. I think the third thing is it sort of, it creates a, a sort of strange comfort blanket where you end up kind of ranking projects purely based on their benefit cost ratios or on their kind of net present value. And and you forget the kind of you you, you sort of forget the sort of the limitations of that model and you forget the need to make objective decision making. And you you forget the need for showing some kind of discretion and leadership uh, to sort of to choose to do things and uh and 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 you know there's a really uh brilliant book written by uh 
sort of uh, co-authored by Mervyn King, who used to be the governor of the Bank of England, called Radical Uncertainty. And it's a real kind of recognition from him about, at a kind of macroeconomic level, that sort of the failures of the financial system that led, leading into the financial crash of putting too much emphasis on the kind of modeling and the numbers and forgetting to use judgments as as decision makers and economy and that you know compounded to the issues we saw in the in the sort of financial sector and there's an equivalence i think in in that kind of uh in the kind of use of cost benefit analysis in decision making so i i don't think I, you know i still think it should be there i'm not i'm not advocating for tearing it up but i think uh we should be a bit more objective about it and it sort of reminded me that a couple of years ago i went to uh, just before uh, the pandemic i went to a oecd conference in greece in athens uh about regional policy and the kind of issue of cost benefit analysis came up. It was it was that kind of cool conference, uh, and I sort of remember saying whether Pericles would have thought uh, would have asked his kind of <laughs> officers to do a cost benefit analysis on the Parthenon, and if they had, would they have had the foresight to recognise in perpetuity that two thousand years later tourists would be paying twenty euros or whatever it costs to go and visit it? Of course they wouldn't. And and but I think there is a there is a sort of danger that you know, some of that innovation, some of that kind of wonder of our cities that we, you know, that we revel in now, that kind of history and that kind of architecture and that beauty, we we kind of, we discount because we can't model it and can't measure it. And I think, I just think, you know, I think we should be a bit bolder and a bit, you know, a bit braver about, about what we do. So instead think, uh, what would the Greeks do? What um, would the Greeks do is, is, okay. a, is, a, is a good argument in most cases. <laughs> okay. Uh, what would the ancient Greeks do? Ancient Greeks do. Okay. Good distinction. No. Um, amazing. Thank you so much, Stephen. That was a, a great answer on the fly as well. Um, so uh, our last question that we ask every single guest is um, a recurring question to you. What is a smart city or smart place? So a, a smart a smart city is a collection of smart people, uh, and uh, I think what cities, you know, c- cities are probably humanity's greatest invention. Uh, the ability to uh, recognise the different, you know, the scale of difference from the animal kingdom of congregating not just in sort of tribes or here or kind of communities or kind of herds or whatever, but in the scale of millions of people to, to kind of work with each other, learn from each other, uh, kind of communicate with each other and do things collectively is, is kind of, as I say, I think humanity's greatest achievement. Uh, and, and so a smart city is not a new thing. Uh, I think it is part of the the kind of the quality and the the kind of uh, greatness of our cities. I think there are there is a there is a kind of that constant innovation uh, and that constant uh, opportunity to apply new technology to to ease how we work with each other and how we live with each other and how we communicate with each other is you know is always been a nature of our cities whether it's you know through developments in how we move around cities how we build our buildings how we take the waste away from our cities how do we you know all of that stuff 
still exists and there are new ways of doing things and new ways and we should be open and encouraging and happy and so smart cities are are what you know what our cities have always been and should always be uh, is my view on that perfect really nice answer it's always really interesting for me to hear everyone's different uh answers there i like the the part where you said the collection of smart people so um yeah so that's that's all we have for you today Stephen. i hope i hope you enjoyed it i really I enjoyed no, talking with fun. you it's much, it's, it's much better than some meetings you do okay, in, good. in a day so you know chance to hear my own voice and thoughts oh yes who, who wouldn't like it <laughs> i also enjoyed hearing your voice and your yeah. thoughts so um i had a lot of fun with you today so so it's great learning from you. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. It's very valuable. Great. And to all of our listeners, uh, don't forget you can always create a free account on babel-smartcities.eu to find out more about smart city projects, solutions, implementations, all these cool things happening. Um, and with that, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you at the next stop on the journey to a better urban life. 